Welcome to the long-awaited reintroduction of Behind the Blade Podcast, episode number 42. Uh, Today, we have got our typical news from around the knife world, as well as a big old fat, meaty history segment on the world-famous Warrior Knife and all of its iterations. So stay tuned, and we'll be back in a flash. Spring is finally here. It's in the air. We've reached positive digits on the thermometer, which is a change over and the last week. positive double digits. Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Good God. We're in the 40s. The entire Great White North is still a giant snow mound that is just thawing mm-hmm. and thawing. So even before I can access my favorite camping spots, because snowshoeing is virtually out of the question at this point. So that's not a mode of travel. I can't quite camp because it's just a disgusting mess out there. So I have nowhere to go, but I still am in the spirit of being outdoors, even in this terrible time. So what am I doing? I'm exercising all that energy by preparing my gear. So I am going through backpacks. I am going through knives and axes and canteens and cook sets and everything like that. And now that that's exhausted, (laughs) I am sitting down with my KME sharpener and I am taking it to my favorite field knives so that when that last fleck, that last snowflake evaporates off the ground, boom, I'm ready for action back into the woods. So I invite you guys to check out the products on KMESharp.com and their distributors so that you can get hooked up before it's too late. Good news is, is if it is too late for you to preemptively tune up all your edge tools from axes to knives to your favorite scissors that you like to... Who goes camping with scissors? I don't know. Maybe if you wanted to, you could sharpen them on your KME scissor attachment. Even your little folding pen knives. Everything that you want to take out in the woods with you that has an edge can be honed razor keen on the KME sharpening system. And if it doesn't come in until after your first camping trip, guess what? You're going to use all those edge tools. You're going to need to tune them up anyways. So please go check out KMESharp.com and be sure to tell them Behind the Blade sent you. And here we are after that intro music that I know many of you have been waiting to hear. I sincerely apologize on behalf of... uh, James Tiberius Stewart, who is sitting across from me. What's up, people? How are you doing today? We have been balls to the wall between both companies. A lot of late nights, a lot of weekends. Dude, for us both. Absolutely. It, oh, it's just, yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, both, <laughs> both of us have just been hammering it, trying to grow our businesses and make ends meet. And there comes a point when you move out of the garage, guys, who are in the trenches right now, and you have to put on... A completely different hat. It's no longer how do I get these plunges even? Although that's always like a baseline. How do I get this finish better? How mm-hmm. do, so that's your baseline, but there comes a point when you have to conduct yourself as a business owner and that commands an enormous amount of time and resources. Yep. And unfortunately with a staffing change, uh, with a huge mid tech production, obviously Jim is constantly in the fray Dude, of a huge all, mid-tech production. All the time. I mean, like, and we're producing, we, we were doing knives in batches of two to 300. Now we're up to five to 600 pretty commonly. Bananas. And just, and just knocking things out. We are, we're doing, we're doing really well. And uh, we didn't really have any new hires. We're in a, like, 
we're, we're in a better position everywhere around. And all of it is just straight up project management and good communication, which is never perfect, but it's better than it has been. And, uh, and, well, and like it's, it's night and day from what it was before. And you guys have brought a lot of stuff in house. So you had a lot of mm-hmm. corners that needed to be, you know, uh, knocked, so to speak to use yeah. carpentry terms. So there was, uh, some growing pains that you were going through. So even now you're resurrecting the Manitou, right? Oh dude, we just had the Manitou release and, and uh, we hadn't made that knife since like 2007, 2008. So even though it was a, a, a product you did, there was a mm-hmm. complete re-engineering process because now you're manufacturing oh, well, in-house. Correct. We had, we had last time it was made, it was made by um, a, uh, an, an, an outside um, OEM manufacturer, CNC right. house. And, and they made it to our spec. Everything was beautiful. Everything went together great. But we we're still, you know, kind of paying that overhead. This is entirely in house. We did all of our own guards, all of our own pommels, all of our own spacers. Um, I taught the assembly guys how to fit hidden tang knives together on this run in a more comprehensive way than I've ever had to teach hidden tangs to anybody ever before. Right. I mean, so so there's just so many moving parts inside of a inside inside of a manto. I mean, like a manto has. Easily, I think it was twenty-one spacers per vintage stack. So, it, and there are two of those on each knife. Right. And then, if you fill the, the middle with even more spacers, you basically just have a handle that's nothing but spacers. <laughs> right. And so, there's compression issues, and there's getting all the glue in there and getting it all together. But we surmounted it. We shipped six hundred of them, and and wow. four hundred had sold in the first day. That oh, that was you know, really, yeah, really really strong. We, I, I think it's one of the finest knives. I remember my first grinding. Uh, not to wax on about our companies because that's a <laughs> we'll, pretty we'll, strict policy. We'll move, we'll yeah. move forward soon. <laughs> um, but the first grinding I attended, that was the knife that I wanted to make, and mm-hmm. everyone's like, "We haven't made those in years." And <laughs> we're like, like, "Are you Come crazy?" On! <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, and that is kind of a. Uh, that's just indicative of what you guys are going through. Mm-hmm. And obviously we have our own trials and tribulations, but that of course. is why we haven't been able to dedicate the time to the show. So and, to bring and, us back yeah. full circle, that was, I mean, this is like a part-time job that you don't get paid for. And there comes a point when you're working till eight, 10 o'clock at night, six, seven days a week. And we don't have time. Yep. And yeah. We're just dead tired at that point. It. And the only thing we want to go, we'll go do is go home. Drink a beer, play some video games, go to bed. Yeah, become one with the couch. The only thing we want to do at that (laughs) point. I mean, we've been, we've really, really been pushing really, really hard in our both respective companies. And, uh, and, and it's really shown Matt's been delivering a ton of knives. I mean, that's obvious from my end of things. And, and I can tell you for a fact that we've been delivering a ton of knives, easily 50% more knives than we have in a, in the same time frame as before as this year. That's yeah. And we've the, doubled production too. So, yeah, I mean, and that yeah. doesn't come for free. It comes at the cost of hard work. It, I mean, yeah. I mean, like we're not, we're Matt and I are not nine to five guys. We're till the job done is guys. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're till the, till the job is done guys. Right. That's what I mean. I mean, so. <laughs> For, forgive my forgive my bad grammar. Just for what it's worth, this is after a full day's work, and it is eight forty nine p.m. and we're just starting to record the show. So yep, this is truth. But this is we truth. know you guys wanted it, and we were eager to do it. So here we are. And yep. without further ado, I happen to know that Mister Stewart has a new knife you'd like to talk about. I am really kind of stoked about this. I need to do more research on this, but I'm but I guarantee that there are listeners out there who are familiar with the brand Giant Mouse. This is, I, it was a Whose birthday. Whose logo is a tiny mouse, by the way. It is. It's actually, <laughs> actually kind of cool, like a geometric mouse full of triangles and circles in a mouse shape. 
I mean, but not a Mickey Mouse. So Disney, don't you dare look at it. So, <laughs> so but um, I out of their Ace brand, I have their Biblio. It was a birthday gift to me from a generous man by the name of Richard Hood. Um, Richard, Richard, and I have traded knives for beer in the past. <laughs> That's currency in the knife industry, by the way. Just you in case you believe want to know. It. And uh, and I have a very, very cool looking, very solid, very purposefully executed knife. Now that may be like a a little bit of an ambiguous term, you know, to the to 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 the layman. But like when when Matt and I took a look at this knife, and we both we both kind of came to the same conclusion, there is so much purposeful execution in how this knife is made. Uh, there's perfect lockup. It's it's impeccable. I'm gonna kick in yeah. right here because I, look, I'm very critical of knives, especially folders. Oh, totally. And I think that just comes with being in the industry. And as I'm looking at this, there's not one surface of that knife that wasn't thought about and executed intentionally. Yeah. Everything in it has got a purpose and has got some style flair and some finish details. Dude, every absolutely. square millimeter has something to it and that's what I love about that knife. Yeah, you you can tell where they went in um and and hand fit the blade to the stop pin and the lock and I mean the blade is perfectly centered. There's no play in any position. Usually there's like a little bit of play at like the one third mark and the oh, two thirds right. mark. There's a little bit nothing. Nothing. Totally rock solid. Um I'm I did not research this beforehand because I'm an awesome radio host. But <laughs> <laughs> but but I was told that um the giant mouse guys have something to do with Kershaw. And and it may just be using um, the 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 brand or the tooling to be able to put these knives together, but like Kershaw After Hours crew, Kershaw After Hours, and it's actually like not a thirty dollar knife; it's a three hundred dollar knife, and it's awesome. It's really cool. They, you, there's they they they, uh, they obviously like even looking at it right now, I can tell that they put down the money for ha- for having this blade creep fed. I just, for the surface grind, for the surface to grind it. to flatten it out. I mean, the, the 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 flat grind on this thing is absolutely perfect. I mean, the grinds match up each. Side. Even though it's supposed to be a full high grind, the grinds still match. I mean, everything is dead centered. Even um, there aren't any water jet marks on the liners. Every surface your hand contacts is contoured or radius or broken in some mm-hmm. capacity. So, I mean, when you hold it. It just it everything feels polished. Everything. I mean, it's yeah. so comfortable. I mean, I mean, there's a there's a beautiful sandblast on here. It's not like a rough sandblast, but a very kind of it's like a, a frosted like glass bead. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean, I'm super proud to own this. So thank you, Mister Richard Hood. Um, this is awesome, and uh, we had a pr- we had a prior arrangement <laughs> for for a custom <laughs> nice. on that. So I got to get making him that knife. Spoken well. like a true custom maker, <laughs> oh, which it's pending. It's it it'll happen. <laughs> sometime but no every everything about this knife is absolutely perfectly executed they really put their thought into this and it's nothing's haphazard nothing's an accident yeah nothing you can, you can very tell, intentional yeah. you can tell by looking at it everything um so definitely check it out it's giant mouse ace biblio is what i have and they have a, a number of other models from giant mouse as well i'm gonna and, have to look into them because I, that is just a really um i'd like to see some of their other models yeah, for it, sure. And if I could trust their execution, which I believe I absolutely can, I can see me end up carrying one of these at one point. Absolutely. That, and that's their smallest one, from what I understand. Oh, is it? Yeah. That, and everything else is like a four inch, you know, like a, like a decent size, decent size folder. That's for a so, folder. I like a three and a half, four inch max. Yeah. And, and what I understand, guys, if you can find a way to get in on their mailing list and get onto the, get onto their website to, to, to buy, to buy these knives, they're gone within minutes. Oh, these and are they, a solid sell-through. Solid sell-through. I understand that uh, they do them in batches. And so once they do the batch, they sell the batch, and then there's a wait time you know, until, until the next batch. I understand and, that. No, no, totally. I understand. It's, it's how we run our businesses. Um, but uh, that's how they make these knives, too, and I have 100% respect 
for for it. I am very impressed. So that's what I'm carrying today on top of a VK grunt. Ooh, <laughs> fancy. So I love this thing. Um, and uh, my classic Swiss tool. That's... <laughs> No one likes it. <laughs> so, no, we actually had comments on that. They're like, they're like, where's the podcast? I have no idea when you guys are coming back. I can't wait to hear Jim complain about his Swiss tool again. <laughs> it's true. It's yeah. totally true. Oh, I laughed so hard when I read that, but good on you guys. Mr. Matt Martin, if I can get your attention, please. What are you carrying today? I, I don't. Oh, what am I carrying today? Hang on, let me... It's if I didn't know this was coming. You'll recognize <laughs> this sound. Ah, Paramilitary oh, 2 in S30V, black G10 satin finish. There's three of them in here. I've got... <laughs> yeah, there are. There are a bunch. Three different steels, by the way, right. too. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, I've got my Victorinox Alox Farmer. I, uh, or Pioneer? Pioneer. 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 Yep. I, you know, I, I kind of... Uh, if you guys followed some of the later episodes, let me move closer to the mic. I retired my demo knife, semi-retired my demo knife, and I have been carrying this Alox ever since. So it's been about a year, I think, that I've been carrying this, and I mm-hmm. absolutely adore it. Dude, like, I can't... gorgeous. It's a gorgeous knife, Whoa. perfect function, and then on top of that, you have, like, beautiful black aluminum scales yes. on the thing. It is gorgeous. That are protected in the yeah. slip, so it looks... Uh, everything except about the top five-eighths of an inch <laughs> you mean looks brand you mean, new. You mean that's not covered? Yeah, that's where it sticks out and gets abused by my pocket. Um, and then uh, what else am I carrying? I think that's about it. I, uh, I've got a custom that, excuse me, it's a, a knife that I, it was an AK, uh, AKC Force 2, Force two yeah. that I got my hands on and I heavily customized it. Uh, heavily as, customized. As, as a bushcraft knife. But, this was my first um, true Scandi grind using a rest and a clamping fixture so that I could maintain perfect geometry all the way down. It yeah. is brilliant. That was yeah. exciting. That yeah. was really, uh, I'm a freehand grinder, dyed in the wool, always have been, always will be. So in, in that sense, I, I've never used a fixture or a jig or even a tool rest to grind a knife. So mm-hmm. when uh, the opportunity presented itself to do it on this um, Scandi ground, Scandinavian ground blade, I was giddy like a child. Yeah. To me, it was like riding in a police car. Mm-hmm. It was something I've seen other people do, but never experienced myself. Mm-hmm. Not in the front seat, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> uh, it was uh, it was a real big experience, and I actually had to call on uh, Jim's help with uh, doing bolster and spacer material. Yeah. And I had done it in the past with uh, one perfectly successful rendition and then several m- mediocre <laughs> and i said i need to, i need to call uh you know ask a friend mm-hmm. in uh who wants to be a millionaire call a call a professional and he mm-hmm. gave me some tips that really helped my game significantly and i do believe it's something that we're going to see in more of our products um but this was just a huge learning experience everything from uh the scandy grind the bolster spacer work, which is elaborate in my eyes. It is elaborate. Um, and in my capability, more importantly, <laughs> uh, to a new finish on the handles, the micarta mm-hmm. handles, canvas micarta handles, and even the crowning of the front of the handle material yeah, or the bolster. It, it, it's, it's almost like it's almost like when you set up to make this knife for yourself, you're like, I'm going to pack as many things that I'm not comfortable with and do it as possible. You know, and, <laughs> and I do that. That's raises, that. That's it cool. raises an interesting point, Jim, that I, I think uh, applies to to you guys listening too, um, about once a year, 
I'll let it all hang out. I will push myself way beyond my comfort zone, way outside of what I've gotten used to or maybe even bored with when it comes to making a custom knife. And so, you know, just every once in a while, once a year, maybe twice a year, I'll do this. And what that does, and I, um, what would be the word, invite you to try this yourselves, custom mm-hmm. knife makers, yep. um, is, is when you do that, it's like a concept car. You may not have to reproduce that concept part for part, but the nuances that you, uh, you know, reach, that you achieve, that you produce in that one-off piece will translate to your work for the rest of the year and possibly mm-hmm. the rest of your career. It's, it's absolutely true. I mean, uh, I mean, I ran into that doing the daggers yes. out of the custom shop. My grinding game over the last year has gone up significantly. Because, because you're doing daggers. Well, and, it, and it's not just the hollow grinds of the daggers that I've got. It's also my flat grinds, and it's also my convexes that I understand much more intricately. Because, because I did exactly like what you did, pushed the boundaries and executed something brand new to achieve a, to, to achieve. Like a, like a, like a new standard. You up the you raise yeah. the bar. You raise the bar. You yeah, raise the there bar. You go. And it's it's that's why there are expressions like that because it's true. You raise the bar on your own work, mm-hmm. and it's cool to see where it goes. And you'll be able to carry that. Some of the stuff you'll be like, I'm never doing that again. And you don't have to <laughs> wait till next year to try it again. But either way, that's something that you can do to kind of push yourself. Say, I'm, I'm sick of making model A, B, or C. Uh, I'm going to make something completely different that I've always wanted to do, and then just really push the point home. Stay up late. I mean, I was working mm-hmm. on this thing till 11, 12, yep. midnight, 2 o'clock in the morning, <laughs> you know, just in my off hours getting it right. And and when I was done, I said, oh, great. Now I can use those new techniques on future work. Mm-hmm. And, and now your baseline just moves up. It, I mean, maybe the knife is 10 points above where you're currently at. Well, your baseline's going to move up five points. Yep. You know what I mean? Yep. So it's a, it's a valuable thing to do. And even outside of knife making... Whatever it is you do, you can do this. You can do the same thing. Mm-hmm. You can push yourself. Maybe it's a, a physical workout or it's martial arts or it's your day job or it's your night hobby that could turn into a career. Have this this annual magnum opus that you throw yeah. out. And believe me, the results, you will immediately feel them. Yep. And it's a, and it's a mental game too. Totally. I mean, I mean, by the time you achieve it, you get addicted to your own achievement. Yes. At that point too. I mean, like I know that's I know that's uh that's, that's hot for you and it's hot for me. Is that is that I'm addicted to that kind of a that kind of a, a result. Just like just like I did this to prove that I could to myself. And, yeah. And and and, and there's a and there's there's a mental health thing with that too. It's like it's like you're not getting stuck in the same kind of droll you know doldrum mentality. The you're rut. You're, yeah. You 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 dig yourself out of it with with I accomplished this. Yeah. Check that out. Yeah. It, and it and, does feel good. And it is. And and you should you should feel good about that. So, Absolutely. So, yeah. All right. Mm-hmm. So, what is going on in the world of knife newses? So, we have, from Knife News, we have a number of cool stuff. Montana, the uh, patrons, of you, if you will, of the Bowie Knife uh, Blade um, repeal. Oh, the 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 band the band repeal. Oh, okay. Where uh, it was it was uh, blades longer than four inches can no longer cannot be carried in Montana. They lifted that. Oh, knife, good. Knife rights lifted that. When when did that get implemented? I can't imagine um, Montana and all twelve of its residents before <laughs> ten years ago having an issue carrying around a large blade um, knife. Two thousand seventeen HB two fifty one um, was when they introduced uh-huh. the uh, they allowed for the carry of a knife with a blade length greater than four inches without the need of a CCW. Okay, gotcha. So, and uh, and uh, and uh, apparently, according to state law, there was a number of 
of of actually specific listed items that registered as dangerous weapons that that uh, HB HB two fifty one completely took off. Oh, nice. The board, so you can conceal carry anything you want oh, now, fantastic. except for apparently switchblades. So, which brings me to HB one fifteen. <laughs> <laughs> nice segue. So, so, so the Montana switchblade ban repeal and knife law preemption bill. That part for me is really interesting. The preemption basically it means that the state law. In this particular instance, preempts local ordinances. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. I thought that was pretty cool. It's like it's like, like local... supersedes. Is yep. That, is yep. That... Supersedes. Okay. I mean, and that's that's state representatives coming together in one. And it's a bipartisan bill. It's not just one side. It's bipartisan. Um, that they're that they're uh, that, that that they're going for. So basically, it's just a just just they're they're lifting the ban on switchblades. That that federal ban that the state had reinforced is now going away. State law preempts federal law, like we know for sure. And state then, sovereignty for the win. That's right. That's right. And then and then a preemption on top of that that prevents um that prevents city ordinances, city, city ordinances county ordinances, townships um from banning these items. And I think that is absolutely fantastic. Good on you guys. Fantastic, and yeah. uh and high five to to knife rights yes. and Doug Ritter for being able to push this through. So oh, who knows? Maybe a little bit of your Doug Ritter uh, grip, grip. What do you call this thing? The RSK one Gen two. Oh, that really rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? <laughs> um, maybe it was uh, some of your purchase funds that went towards this bill repeal. I'm proud of that. Yeah, you I, should take I full will, credit for I, it. It actually was me. It was yeah. like we sold this knife to Jim Stewart. He was our patron. The $13 that was allocated from that sale went to the ink that printed this bill. <laughs> That's right. Perfect. Praise me. No. <laughs> uh, so uh, we also have other news as far as legislation goes. So Virginia has a switchblade commerce bill. Meaning that they can now sell they can, and produce? Correct. They can sell and produce as long as it's not in the state of Virginia little bit of a weak position, in my opinion, that if you're going to allow the manufacture and sale of switchblades out of state, why not just do it in state? It's almost like it's almost like a guaranteed failure, like like a, like a bipartisan committee got together and said, well, no, we just feel that they're dangerous. And then everybody get and, and then uh, and then the other side said, well, what if we just, you know, sold them outside of state? And then they went, hmm, OK, oh. I guess that's the. You know that that that's the thing that was that was that was that came up in committee, which I I'm, that's weird. Yeah, it's a little weird. It's a step in the right direction, but it's too weak to gain any traction, which is why the governor vetoed it. And, good, <laughs> yeah, because it's so, uh it's greedy, and if you really felt that it was unsafe, yeah, then that's like unscrupulous a little it, bit. Yeah. It, that's like saying, uh, well, we don't want crack in our neighborhood, but we can sell it to the adjacent neighborhoods. Yep. That's totally fine. That's yep. ridiculous. Yep, yep, yep. The logic, the logic follows suit. I mean, it's got, it's got stuff. Um, there was a subsection that was added to it. It's a little, um, little superfluous to even talk about it now, but basically, um, it is, um, if any employee of a company that made, a, that makes a switchblade is carrying one, they're preempted from the ban inside the state. Okay, so it's like well, a it's, hall pass yeah, if you're a manufacturer. Yeah, it was a hall pass. That's exactly that's the best way to describe. But it, the whole sure. thing got. Yep, yep, and that's what I was going to talk 86. about next. The whole thing got 86. That was uh, knife rights SB 1251 in Virginia, and the go- the governor, which uh, last name by the name of Northam, um, perceived danger of switchblades was the major sticking point. Get it? Sticking point. Oh yeah, yeah. Because of all the switchblade stabbings in 2019, I'm sure that happened across the state, which is you know, you know, 
Yeah. If switchblade knives are too dangerous to be sold in Virginia, we should not facilitate their sale and distribution in other states. Okay, well, at least yep. he's st- sticking to the narrative. Yep. And so yep. I, that mm-hmm. much I appreciate, although vehemently disagree with. Yep. I, at least you're sticking to your guns, so to speak. Right, right, right. right. You're, you're, being, you're being consistent. You're not pulling anything like, else. Crack's in. not good in our neighborhood. Crack's not good in any neighborhood. That's what he's saying. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we are not comparing crack to switchblades. <laughs> no, I, but you have to... You have yeah. to you but, look, but the view logic it through follows. the eyes of the detractors. Now, I don't agree with them, but you have to see what it is that they're saying. Due to a gross lack of education and mm-hmm. a profound level of ignorance, they feel like switchblades are the most dangerous thing since the Tommy gun. Yeah, it's just because, you know, I, and I hate to I hate to bring them down to the base level, but it's almost like they were told that and they were just like, yeah, they are. Um, these are politicians, Jim. That's exactly what happened. And, and oh yeah, they, that's right. They were they were told that by an assistant who says, "Oh no, in the fifties, gang members were killing each other with these. Now they're killing each the... other with high points." So, <laughs> you can see this all in the documentary West Side Story. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Historically accurate in every context. Absolutely. Yeah. Are you a jet? No. Um, <laughs> so, um, and the next step for unfortunately for this bill is a is a veto override, which is of course two thirds vote in house and senate Ooh, so and uh and uh, nobody thinks that there can be a critical amount of support there was enough support to get it through the house and senate and committee and get it all the way to the governor's desk and the governor uh vetoed it at that point but there's not enough um support that's like body shots in a boxing match man that just wears you down yeah yep, so nobody's yep. gonna want to invest the time and effort again no no it's, it's already got a stamp of failure on it right so yeah so so i mean i mean why bother so um i'm you know i'm keeping my eyes on Virginia to see what they kind of do. I'll be looking out for her headlines um, to see if something new comes through that's maybe worded a bit better uh, to maybe lift the ban entirely. Because if they were going for that, it seems like it would have been better received. Yeah, it was you kind know? of a, a, ha- it was slipshod. The yeah. presentation was slipshod. It didn't have enough gusto behind it. It was odd. That yeah, is a it's weird odd. bill. It, so, a commerce bill. And I get I get the commerce bill, the entire idea, but how many businesses were going to open up in Virginia due to this commerce bill that we're going to produce switchblades to create a ton of jobs? Right. I mean, I mean, uh, so it's like so it's like even economically speaking, you wouldn't gain a lot of traction with this angle of legislation. Yeah, we so attack. It should have just been a straight up a straight up repeal. Yep. I mean, uh, uh, universal. Yeah, right. Yeah, universal repeal um and then have it watered down if necessary through committee. You know, um, is a it would have it would have gone a hell of a lot better. Yeah, I've I've uh, I've got nothing. I've had my nose in history books more than in the news. So uh. <laughs> that's 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 pretty normal, though. I mean, like I mean, like you are very um, you're very much of a knowledge seeker. You're like a you're like you're like a knowledge archaeologist. I feel like the book counterpart of Indiana Jones. <laughs> yeah, <that's right. laughs> Instead of a hat, you have a mohawk. <laughs> We will be back with a beautiful, very rich and fulfilling history segment brought to you by Mr. Matt Martin about the warrior knife and its patterns. Take it easy. Jim, you're a knife guy, right? I tend to think of myself as a knife guy, Matt. Well... I also am a knife guy, and unlike you, I do not have most of my family in the knife business. I am, I, there's a little bit of nepotism there, gotta admit. <laughs> Being a knife guy whose family is not made up of knife people, do you know the number one request I get? No, no, what is the number one request? Do you think you could sharpen my knives, Matt? You know, 
that sounds strikingly familiar. So maybe I do get that kind of request. Maybe you get a little bit of it. I, right? I do. I you do. do. Yep. Now, mm-hmm. are you carrying a sharpening system in your back pocket every time you go to dinner at a relative's house? No, because I'm out to enjoy dinner, not be available to sharpen people's knives. Yeah, neither am I. So what I can carry, though, is I can carry a pocket stump, which makes me savior when I go over to my dad's house. And he goes, Matt, can you sharpen my knife for me? And I go, yes, I can. Now, I have a preference (laughs) towards four-inch stones because I feel like I get plenty of stroke out of Mm -hmm. that, but it's not so big that it becomes cumbersome, nor does it become fragile. And, you know, once you get, like, Mm -hmm. if you could picture a one-inch stone that's 12 inches long, I feel like it would break. You know know what I mean? Something like that, yeah, there's just too much flex in that. But but what you've got going on here, four-inch stone, I think that's that's your sweet spot. That is my sweet spot. I also like one-inch stones because it allows me to sharpen recurve knives with the greatest of ease. Now, a lot of people, the recurve myth came from bench stones, which are, like, two, three inches wide. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And people have a difficult time with them. But with a one-inch stone, your capabilities are relatively infinite. I mean, there's there's not much that you can't sharpen with a one-by-four stone. Luckily, our friends at Genda Industries produce such an animal. And that animal can be taken to new levels of elegance in the form of their one-by-four Japanese natural stones. This, this is something that Genda's done fairly recently is take all of these amazing natural Japanese stones and bring them directly to the market. These are the same stones that were quarried centuries ago to sharpen katanas, people, except now it fits in the pocket of your jeans. So you can be the hero of the day when asked that ever-present knife person question, can you please sharpen my knife for me? Or maybe you're out in the field and you don't want to carry a sharpening system with you and you need to do little touch-ups because while batoning, you hit a knot and it rolled a little bit of your edge and it's beyond what stropping can do. Well, Jenna has got you covered with the Amakusa Core Stone and the Binsui Medium Stone, which is more than enough to get you back to a working edge, especially when coupled with a strop. Now, keep in mind, you can use your belt. However, Jenna's got you covered there, too, as they offer a myriad of different leathers ranging from bovine to kangaroo. So check them out and go to GendaIndustries.com, look up their 1x4 Japanese natural stones, and be the hero of the day or an apt fieldsman. And we are back with, uh, this is an exciting history segment to me. It's so exciting. I'm surprised that we haven't covered it. In fact, I made, I didn't even trust. I, ma- I made Jim and Jenna, in my wife, independently search through the podcast to make sure that we haven't already covered this <laughs> because I was convinced that I had already talked about this. It turns out I actually recount this tale so many times that I the, thought that we had discussed it on You had air. to have, because, uh, well, I mean, it's, it's easy to assume, oh, hey, this is an easy episode if we just do this. So I had to have covered it. I must at some have. Point. No, through 42 now episodes, never happened. Finally, we're touching <laughs> we're on here. it. And this is the abbreviated, and when you hear how meaty this is, it's astonishing that this is abbreviated, history of the warrior knife. Now, <laughs> I got mm. a lot of information on this from a very comprehensive, almost overly comprehensive. Uh, it's a great read, but mm-hmm. it's a fantastically detailed book written by Michael Janich, which is called The Warrior Path, The History, Evolution, and Purpose of the Warrior Knife. Now, the reason I have this book is I was gifted a warrior knife um, that was manufactured by Spyderco, and we'll get to their 
uh, generation towards the end of the story. But uh, I was gifted this book along with a warrior knife, which I didn't bring to the studio today. And I feel really dumb because I sent Jenna <laughs> home to get the book and <laughs> didn't I, grab the knife. I didn't tell her to grab the knife. Um, I love the knife. Yeah. And I have some connections with the knife's history personally, which I think is what endears it to me so mm-hmm. much. Yep. And that's from a martial arts background. And uh, a couple other notes that I'll touch on as we go through the history. So I took some notes. Um, I'm going to try to keep it cohesive. Forgive me if I, uh, what's the word? There's a word for this. It's like yeah. a, it's a very sophisticated word. Oh, it's not oh, gaff, um, like, uh, it's, it's better than fumble, but it sounds like dot, dot, dot. So we'll, uh, okay. Yeah, yeah me blank. too. It's late. Yeah. You guys know what I'm saying. Forgive me if it gets a little <laughs> bit off course, because this is all written in extremely shorthand. Um, but let's get started. Mm-hmm. So the warrior knife is a very distinct in its styling. So yeah, if, it's very recognizable. If there's you, only one knife like it. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, yeah. yeah. I, and I mean, it is, it's so unique and you'll understand here in a minute as to why it is so unique. But if you have never seen one or heard of one, I invite you to Google warrior knife so that you know what we're talking about. And it'll make a lot more sense as we go through describing it. So the original concept actually came up in a man's a man's mind named Randy Warner. Randy was a Hodong Do instructor, which is a Korean style headed up by Grandmaster Ju Bang Lee, and it gained a lot of traction um, in the 70s and 80s. That's mm. that's kind of when it came on scene and became kind of a big deal. Yeah. Um, so you would see Hodong Do stuff everywhere. It was and it's a study that I style uh, a, a style that style I that you studied, studied. <laughs> yeah, uh, for a number of years. And I have a lot of friends and lifelong friends that came from that. Um, so anyways, Randy, as a Huarong Do instructor, had extensive knowledge in body mechanics and anatomy. That also came over from some of his more esoteric studies um, on the side. Eventually, he kind of fell into Huarong Do. Uh, and it, the quoted term is because he was becoming a cosmic oatmeal cookie and there's a whole article i think in black belt magazine or knives magazine about that uh so anyways randy came up with this design kind of using his anatomy and body mechanics and martial arts training to come up with the perfect combat knife and he began developing this in 1977 with the hurangdo technique specifically in mind in development so let's see here uh Warner met Bob Taylor, who was another Hurong Do uh, practitioner and mm-hmm. instructor. As it, He met him in, in 77, and he played a key role in the project's momentum. So Taylor, being private security, military veteran, elite soldier, uh, he brought to the table, number one, some operating capital. <laughs> and he also brought in extensive martial arts background. And, and mm-hmm. Bob Taylor, if anybody's met him, he's a small guy full of energy. The guy's a maniac and he's just like, go get him all the time. So he also had a lot of motivation and inspiration to push the project forward. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like Randy was like, Hey, I have this idea. And Taylor was like, let's do it. (laughs) In fact, I'll bankroll it. Let's do it. So, so that's kind of how that came to be. Now, there is somewhat of a celebrity air that's associated with this knife. And that's in the form of Michael D. Echanis. Michael D. Echanis was arguably the most famous Huarong Do practitioner, mm-hmm. especially during their, their heyday, right? Right. He wrote all the books on... Yep. Let me read the cover. The covers are really oddly written. And anybody <laughs> who's been in a martial arts store will immediately recognize yeah. Oh, them. yeah. They're everywhere. I have one, actually. You I, do, too. Yes, yeah, that's of right. Of course. Yeah. 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 The, the, the titles of the books are 
Special Forces Ranger UDT SEAL hand-to-hand combat special weapon special tactic series. I would say a little dry. <laughs> yeah, a little, a little dry and a little broad. So uh, there were a several several series of these books that were released. I think they were Paladin Press mm-hmm. originally. Yeah. Uh, and they were sold in martial arts stores. This is uh, predates the internet as we know it today, mm-hmm. obviously. But a lot of people who were like in Ninja Mania era, you would all have these books. And the black book was outlawed for a while. (laughs) It was like too lethal to sell over the counter. (laughs) That's fantastic. And these books were authored by Michael Uh D. Chanis. So that is kind of the celebrity air that surrounds it. And we'll get get to the naming convention Mm -hmm. in a little bit. Well, anyways, Randy Warner introduced the concept to Bob Taylor, who brought motivation and operating capital. And through that and their connection with Michael E. Chanis, he had a single input. Now, this is interesting. Echanis' input was limited to the serrated second edge, especially designed for trapping the opponent's limb okay. while the knife is in reverse grip. Gotcha. So the iconic yeah. warrior blade with the scallop serrations on the spine, mm-hmm. that was Echanis' only input on the design, even though he's credited publicly for, for a, a larger The amount. whole thing. Right. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, wow. And we'll get to why that is in just a second. So... Uh, Using shade tree methods and some help from a local machinist, uh, a mild steel prototype came to be. So mm-hmm. this is at the behest of Randy and Bob, right? right. So they, they they went to somebody and said, okay, here's the design. Can we bring it to reality? And, and he made it. And if you're wondering where the design came from, to be honest, this is super interesting. So in late 1979, Taylor teamed up with a man named Lester. <laughs> that's his only name taylor didn't remind it remember his last name and <laughs> it's like madonna like a single exactly. name or lester yeah, yeah. Okay. lester right, go ahead. it's like madonna but lester <laughs> uh so but keep in mind the era this is 1979 and lester was a computer genius at a time when such a title was scarce everyone's a computer genius now right? oh yeah you know, but yeah, yeah. at that point then, yeah that, there just weren't that many computers mm-hmm. let alone experts in the field yeah well anyways Lester, quote unquote, (laughs) implemented his computation prowess to model a dynamic range of human motion using Da Vinci's Vitruvian Man as a baseline. So that's pretty creative. He actually quantified, yeah, yeah, Yeah. the Vitruvian Man. Everybody knows the Virtual Man, right? You know, or the Universal Man, as some people know it. And he used those metrics to develop a full range of body motion and to write the code, being able to establish all the arcs and movements that the human body was capable of. That's awesome. I would love to see a simulation with that math already done. Oh, no. You know, well, be... well, now we have mocap, right? Well, of course. So before yeah. we had mm-hmm. that tech, we had mm-hmm. th- this guy literally had to put in points of motion oh, yeah. in code exclusively. X, Y, Z in time, man. It's crazy. It's basically what he did by hand. Nuts. So, so this technology advanced, uh, advanced the process and advanced process ensured that the knife's ultimate practical performance could be reached you know what i mean so they had an idea and how Mm. do we bend the lines to mesh up with body mechanics the best right that's a crazy technological approach Mm -hmm. and it's this knife is not a looker and there's a reason and that is because Mm -hmm. it was developed now look there is a little bit of lore that goes along with this because you see the knife and you're like well what can it do that a k-bar can't Mm -hmm. but the fact of the matter is is they actually mathematically developed the perfect fighting knife for their fighting style. So it's, it's pretty specific. Uh, Taylor was an appropriate name for Bob because yeah, it's right. very tailored. It's very tailored. Yeah. Um, That's interesting. So let's see as I thumb through my notes, fumble through my notes, which is not the word I was It's only about for. 15 pages. We're good. Uh, <laughs> um, so at this point, Taylor 
commissioned a custom maker who deviated from the original design and oh. eventually even tried to change to whoa that made so him upset he threw his that I threw yeah. my thing no no they just slid off but I gotta say that's a huge pet peeve of mine and he even okay. tried to claim the design as his own oh. so we'll elaborate on that in just a minute but this was first produced in 1981 so mm. from 77 to 81 it mm. was it took that long before that's four years, four years of development yeah. before they actually saw the first working knife from this design wow um and after being initially rejected by hall of fame maker al mar or company owner i should say al mar and plagiarized by the first custom contractor that we just discussed taylor and Warner discovered world record grinder mr bob engneth now you're gonna have to forgive me this jumps around a little bit as does the book because there are a lot of details that mm -hmm. i thought were too much for the show that mm -hmm. i omitted so there is some timeline jumping uh but to go back to the custom maker I just want to read you this excerpt directly from the book just to show you uh, what kind of people we're dealing with right here and why they were so upset with this maker. So it's on page 26 as I thumb through. That time, uh, thumb is the word I was looking for. Oh, oh good job. <laughs> <laughs> so although receiving the first true prototypes of their design was a significant step forward, Taylor and Warner were disappointed with the shortcomings of their execution. They were even more disappointed, however, with the conduct of the maker they had chosen. Now, this man has been is remains nameless. They didn't want to give him any credit or publicity yeah, in the writing. Screw of this, this book. guy! Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> At the second SOF convention, Soldier of Fortune convention in 1981, the maker's show table was filled with examples of the imperfect version of their design, which he claimed was actually his design. Taylor immediately confronted the maker and addressed the issue verbally. Warner, whose temper ran even hotter, which if your temper is hotter than Bob Taylor, aliens are going to come meet you because you've learned how to split the atom. Right. In, so, in a person without dying. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Bob didn't mess around. So oh. for Randy to, to high order even hotter yeah. is crazy. Mm -hmm. He found another resolution, however. He scooped up every one of the knives from the table walked out into the parking lot and one by one stuck the blades into the bumper of his car and snapped them in half. Oh. Needless to say, that marked a decisive end to that business relationship. <laughs> <laughs> so take that, plagiarist. Um, oh my God, good job. So I thought that was pr yeah. pretty fantastic when I read that. I was like, oh. no kidding. Yeah, it's like the balls. <laughs> So let's see. Uh, ba, 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 ba. Okay, so this is one of my heroes, actually. And until receiving this book, I had no idea his involvement in the design. So mm -hmm. Al Mar is widely credited because he's the one that took it to the commercial market. But the right. fact is that on initial introduction, when Bob went to Al and said, hey, what do you think about making this knife? Al said, we can't. It's too complex. I'm not going to. Gotcha. Do it. I'm sorry. Yeah. And it was a polite, you know, rebuff, but it was still. Right. And it was probably accurate at the time. I mean, he probably Absolutely. tooled up later. It was it, accurate. Yeah. yeah. So so they did commission the world record grinder, Bob Engnet. So Bob holds the world record for the most knives ground in a 24-hour period, and mm -hmm. it, it ranges in the hundreds. It's like Holy 216 yeah. or something like that. Phenomenal. The man right. used a three-horsepower grinder, a welding glove, and a <laughs> stick. And he was just a monster. And That's he, awesome. He was, as they call him, literally a grinding machine. He, mm. I mean, he was insane. So Bob Agneth, in this case, he ground the blades throughout the early 80s. So from now we're up to the early 80s from 1977 of Inception, right? Um, and then a part-time knife maker and aerospace machinist, Ed Rohn, he was commissioned to bring one element to the table that nobody could really 
harness. Now, this mm-hmm. is early in this type of knife in the tactical knife era, right? Mm-hmm. So he wanted they wanted uh, Taylor and Warner wanted offset serrations on the spine of the knife. Now okay. that was the Achanis contribution, right? But after doing testing, they realized that single sided, like what you would see on a bread knife, they're only ground on one so, side. So they're yeah, you know, I know I know what you're talking about. They're, they're only ground on one side. They're even, right? And it's and it's and it's and they're 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 chisel ground basically into the yes. hollow, right? Okay. But what they wanted after development is they wanted them offset, meaning every tooth, every alternating tooth mm-hmm. was ground from another side. Right. And that's interesting. Nobody could really figure it out. So they, they talked to this guy, Ed Rohn, and he was able to do that the way I do it with a chainsaw file. <laughs> so sometimes a simple solution is the, mo- the most appropriate. Are, are all right? the, you know, this may be tangential, but are they, are all of the serrations different? Like one side's one size and the other side's another size just um, in between or are I, they the same? I believe they're the same. Now there are okay. so many different versions. There have been so many prototypes in different manufacturing mm-hmm. companies that there are going to be subtle differences. I wouldn't right. be surprised if that was one of them. Gotcha. Um, but remember that the primary reason for the teeth Anyways, in the back there, you'll see some photographs, oh, is to it. trap an opponent's arm. So I believe on the Almar, uh, eventually they were the same. Gotcha. And I'm pretty sure on the round eye knife and tool, they were the same too. Gotcha. Okay. So it's um, a, it's it's two small radiuses and a big radius, two small radiuses and a big radius. And yes. And together, they would come together. Yep. Okay. Yeah, gotcha. 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 Cool. So, uh, and it was during this era, which, uh, what did I say it was? 81, early yep. 80s. Agnes yep. is grinding 80s. the blades. Roan is filing in all the serrations. But it was in this era that the knife was dubbed the Echanis Warrior Knife, hmm. which obviously gives much credibility to Echanis's contributions to it. But the fact of the matter is, it was dubbed that in honor of Michael Echanis, who passed away in 78 right. uh, during a mission in Lake Nicaragua. And the whole yeah. helicopter went gonzo to the bottom of the yep lake. so including a friend of your dad's yep, yep yep no they were on the same they were on the same thing bobby went yep. the same thing yeah so yep. uh sad story definite loss to the martial arts community especially in the heyday the prime of his martial arts career but that is where the moniker came from and that's kind of where the false sense of authorship also came from sure. in the public's yeah. eye right mm-hmm. so engneth continued to supply some blanks to roan to augment roan's uh, production capabilities. So Roan was making up some, mm-hmm. and Bob was still also kind of keeping the wheels on by s- keeping up the supply of ground blades. Yeah. So that was kind of cool. And that continued all the way through the late 80s. But as demand was greatly outpacing supply, so a new maker was commissioned. Now, unfortunately, they ran into this situation again, although not plagiarism, but there were some dubious business practices that went unmentioned, and there were significant delays in delivery, and that brought an end to that relationship. Gotcha. So uh, Roan and Agneth couldn't keep up with the demand that they were experiencing, so they went to a bigger maker, and with that, they met little to no success. Well, in 91, Al Mar contacted Taylor after reconsidering the project feeling that Japanese manufacturing technology had finally matured to meet the needs of the warrior's com- complex design. Nice. And so nice. to your point, like you, mm-hmm. it was kind of foreshadowing. You're yeah. like, I'm sure they caught up eventually. Well, they did. Yeah. And in between that time, this is also an interesting little nugget of information just to see not everybody knows w- about the warrior knife, mm. but it's te- it's like the forest gump of knives. It, it started <laughs> so many things. Yeah. So in uh-huh. that time, uh, Bob Taylor discovered a commercially used rubber 
and I don't remember. Mm-hmm. It's a complicated name. I don't remember what it's called, and it doesn't matter. Uh, but he d- he discovered a, a commercially used rubber that he wanted to implement on the handles to give it a more comfortable, shock absorbing, and more universally fitting mm-hmm. grip because it was softer. It had a low durometer, right? So it was kind yeah. of squishy in the hand. Anybody's hand would feel comfortable in the confines of the finger grooves, right? Nice. Well, at mm-hmm. that point. He had actually approached Gerber, and I think that was at oh, Al Mars that behest. Sense. That I makes think sense. Al yeah. introduced them to Gerber uh-huh. to, to make the design, and Gerber mm-hmm. said no. But they really liked that rubber handle, mm-hmm. and they en- ended up implementing it on the Gerber BMF and LMF. If you guys remember gotcha. those knives, they have like a foam yeah. rubber handle. Mm-hmm. Well, that was originally brought to light by Bob Taylor. So there's the Warrior Knife's link to Gerber's BMF and LMF, the link to Bob Engneth. <laughs> <laughs> and, and of course, Michael Lee Chana. So, and, and Al Mar now, you know what I mean? Jesus. So and we're yeah, barely getting into that. it. Nice. So uh, again, Al Mar was confident in the Japanese manufacturing capabilities. And he said, let's give this another shot. So by 92, Mar had working samples. After Taylor criticized the samples, however, Mar said, too late, Bob. Tooling's made. They're going down <laughs> like this, like it or not. <laughs> <laughs> so no changes were possible from that point well, forward. Like, well, well, let's give it a shot. Now, yeah. Here's uh, another hurdle uh-huh. they had to cross. While manufacturing was underway in Asia, surprise, surprise, the tooling specifics made it to Taiwan. What? Yeah. When so, does that happen? <laughs> and in Taiwan, low-quality knockoffs were being made and distributed. Now, yeah. I had an encounter with what I believe is a low-quality knockoff outside of Fort Lewis in Washington. I was doing a UXO job up there. Mm-hmm. We went to a pawn shop, and there was a warrior knife, but there was something not quite right about it. Right. I probably yeah. should have grabbed it because it's probably still worth a mint, <laughs> but either way, you know, uh-huh. uh, whatever. So uh, Water Taylor and Marr held fast, and in 92, they didn't let that deter mm-hmm. them, and in 92, this instant classic hit the shelves. Though highly collectible, though, the Warrior was far from a major commercial success, and it subsequently dropped in 95. So yeah. it had a three-year run, yeah. which is pretty good for something. It, it's this... good enough for you to go out onto eBay and pick one up if you wanted to find one. You could you could find one. Oh, but they're a fortune now. Oh, are they really? Oh, they are. Oh, are they really? Wow. Yeah. So, okay. but, but you yeah. have to figure for three years to run a very niche model is actually a pretty good run because okay, yeah. it's pretty limited market, mm-hmm. although everybody wanted one. After three years, they pulled the plug on it. Gotcha. So, however, having a head start, Bob Taylor, beginning in 92, was already developing a more practically diminutive size Hobbit Warrior knife. And I did so, hear about this one. Yeah, that's the, it's kind of a little bit shrunk down. Yeah. And there were a lot of tribulations that he went to. He actually literally took the blueprint, Xeroxed it scaled it down, you know, 30% or whatever it was, <laughs> and then realized, well, this doesn't translate. You can't just shrink the whole knife. No, it, it doesn't work for fixed blades. No, you, com- <laughs> you compromise ergonomics, you yeah. compromise visual, uh, t- uh, uh, what do you, visual tension. Visual tension yeah. and ergonomics both together do not translate to so, scale. So he had so, to go back and yep. reinvent the wheel, basically. Yep. Yep. Luckily, he had a three-year head start on the, dis- what would you call that, uh, discontinuing of yeah. the Almar line. Yeah, yeah. So... The Hobbit was released in 95, immediately thereafter, mm-hmm. the discontinuing through Almar, and it became the flagship knife for Taylor's new knife company, Recat, or Round Eye Knife and Tool, R-E-K-A-T. Recat. And mm-hmm. that was the brand. If you called Recat, you would get Bob answering the phone. Nice. So that's nice, just nice, how nice. that worked. And yeah. he implemented a lot of things like the black tea finish, which you'll mm-hmm. see on Emerson knives. Sure. Uh, it, he brought a lot of new things to the forefront and he took it as a personal challenge at this point because nobody could make this knife because it was too complex and too <laughs> weird. Nobody wanted to because uh-huh. they didn't know if it was going to sell or not. Right. And he goes, screw it. 
I'll do it myself. Well, at this point, and I'm not exactly sure what happened, but Randy Warner, 80% authorship on this knife, is out of the picture, and mm-hmm. Bob is running with the Hobbit Warrior full steam on his own. Yeah, right. So, But that's kind of Bob Taylor's way. I don't know uh, where Randy couldn't be interviewed for the book. He didn't want to be, so okay. he was left out. Uh, although he did still contribute uh, his portion of the royalties, which were split with Bob Taylor, mm-hmm. to the Special Forces Warrior Foundation, if I'm getting that right. Well, that's cool, though. So, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. They, all their royalties went right to the foundation. They didn't take any money from Spider-Co's rendition, which right. we're getting to here in a minute. So, fast forward to 98, the Pocket Hobbit was released, which Pocket is... Pocket Hobbit. Is that a folding version? It's a folding it's version. It's a folding version. Absolutely. Yep. And you'll see stuff at Benchmade that's actually surprisingly similar. And, okay. And they do... Even uh, I think they even call it a Hobbit. There, there's a smaller, uh, very warrior esque blade that right, they released. Right. But the, you, you can definitely tell that it's derivative of the original. No, oh, totally. Okay, gotcha. Absolutely. Okay, yeah. cool. Um, cool, cool, cool. In 2000, though, Taylor closed Recat uh, for good. He could have mm-hmm. sold it. He could have done a million different things with the design rights. Right. But instead, he just pulled the plug. Done. Uh, mm-hmm. Bob also has some health issues and I don't know if they were starting to set in at that point. So I'm sure it was kind of a slash Mm -hmm. retirement thing and this is too much hassle. So fast forward to 2010 and enter the expert input of Guy Raffaelli. Mm -hmm. Guy Raffaelli was the founder of the Israel combat systems. He was an accomplished martial artist and an elite Israeli defense force veteran. Mm -hmm. So this guy had practical knowledge He's a competitive fighter as well as an instructor. So it's not just smoke and mirrors. He knows what he's talking about. And while he was sitting down trying to develop the perfect fighting knife for his guys, coincidentally, he came up with the warrior knife. Mm. And when he was done drawing, he said, I drew a warrior. (laughs) (laughs) Which is pretty funny. I've actually actually done that before. (laughs) <laughs> where, 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 like, we're like, like, I wonder what would happen if I took this knife and made it squatter and a little bit longer. And I'm like, well, right, right, we've already made the Kalahari Thor. We've done this already. Okay. All right. Skip that. Thought it was so. pretty interesting, though. And, and so basically, uh-huh. he was a, a dealer. Guy Raffaelli was a dealer for mm-hmm. Spider Co. So he, he already had a business relationship with them. Cool. Yeah. And he took his design to Sal Glesser and he was like, hey, what do you think about rebooting the Warrior, but with these changes? Right. Yeah. And Sal and the guys at Spyderco said yes. And the project nice. came to fruition using, at that time, the top state-of-the-art H1 steel. It's an mm-hmm. austenetic steel that mm-hmm. is rust-proof due to the addition of nitrogen. It's a crazy metallurgical, mm-hmm. uh, what would you, I don't know. Enigma. Uh, yes. Enigma. It, yeah. Amazing. And it's light. It's tough. Mm-hmm. It, it work hardens. So every time you sharpen it, the edge retention goes up. up. Interesting. Really that, strange. That's, that's cool. Yeah. But uh, this was reflecting Guy Raffaelli's new design and interpretation. Now, I had uh, a fantastic time uh, training with Guy Raffaelli at a seminar, which was pretty cool. So I went and worked with him. And being friends with Mike Janich, Mike Janich being friends with Bob Taylor, and me being a knife maker, I said, Mike. Well, now, at this point, the Warrior Knife had been uh, discontinued by Spyderco. It had a pretty short run. Mm -hmm. I'm fortunate enough to have one because they do command a pretty high dollar and they're just sexy, cool knives, right? Hmm. Well, I went to Mike and I said, Mike, do you think you could reach out to Bob for me? Mm-hmm. And if I could get the official Hominus Dominus from him to use the warrior name, then I would be the next one in line. Right. Mike reached out. Bob never answered. <laughs> I made <laughs> oh, three no. prototypes uh-huh. to prove that I could do the design justice. But since I asked and got no answer, now I'm hamstrung. Right, and you're so done. I yeah. still have the pattern, and I look at it, and I'll make myself it's, one. It's the brightest 
pattern on your board. It, I am just like, <laughs> it is. And when I look, I'm like, I'm making one of these. <clears throat> and uh, so that was it. So anyways, that is the abridged version of The Warrior Path by Michael Janich. And mm-hmm. a pretty complete history of that knife spanning yeah. from the beginning days to Ed Rohn, Bob Agnith. Al Mar, the connection to Gerber, Guy Raffaelli, yeah. Spider Co, Recat. I mean, it just, this knife <laughs> is so big and not many people, I would say it's it's not as prolific as like Buck Knives, if you say something sure. like that. Or if you say uh, the Navy Mark II, yeah. you know, or even the Gerber Mark II, for crying out loud. <laughs> this is an obscure yeah. knife that has touched many companies and has a lot of influence and at one time was the hottest thing on the shelves from 92 <laughs> to 95. <laughs> that's like, hmm. <laughs> but that's cool all right um that uh that's a that's our history segment this is a really cool knife you guys want to check it out they are all over the place but you for yourself can see the high dollar value of these just look it up online yeah i, I and, think they're going for like a thousand dollars and up yeah that's crazy but but you know if hey, I if I could rare. find a recat, mm-hmm. I would rather that than the Almar because that, that has the design changes, right? It's or, it's yeah, it's a little mm-hmm. bit smaller, yeah. and it's it's a mid tech, mm-hmm. quote unquote, made by Bob Taylor. So right. it, it everyone went through Bob Taylor's hands, mm-hmm. whereas the Almar was technically imperfect, right? Yeah. You know, by their standards. So if I could get my hands on a if any of you guys have a recat warrior kicking around and you want to trade into it, I could probably come up with something. But uh, it's just a cool knife, and uh-huh. I think it is uh, essential in any, especially any Huangdo practitioner who's also a serious knife enthusiast. It's critical in their uh, collection. So, anyways, cool. hope you guys enjoyed the history segment. It was nice to blow the dust off the microphone, and uh, uh, I I think that's a podcast. That's a podcast. Yeah. That's a podcast, Mr. Mad Martin. My name is Jim Stewart, signing off for himself and Mr. Mad Martin. <laughs> All in one shot. That was episode 42 of Behind the Blade podcast. We will catch you guys next time. <laughs>